Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather together as Mishpachai's family in your presence. I pray, Lord, that you speak through me today, that it be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. Father, open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, to be touched by you, and to recognize that the God of all creation is present and very real in our lives and in our midst this morning. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. This week we are in Parsha Chai Sarah, uh, which means the life of Sarah. One of, I think, the most interesting things about the name of this week's Parsha is, is if you've read the Parsha, you realize past the first verse, it really isn't about Sarah's life. As a matter of fact, the first verse is about her death, which is kind of the end of life. Um, so the Parsha's name, the life of Sarah, uh, but it's actually about Isaac's life which I think is really cool because that reminds us that our lives really aren't expressed in how we live them here and now, but what's left of us and other people's lives from here out. So Sarah's life was, divine, dis, divine, was, de, was uh, defined by the life of Isaac and how he walked with the Lord, um, which I think is a really cool uh, concept. Although not at all what I want to talk about today, but just a little nugget for you there. Um, the Lord put a really a uh, uh, powerful message on my heart this week for today in dealing with Parsha Sarah and a few other things. <clears throat> and I think it's a very timely message. I think it's a very important message. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, it's something that as a community, as individuals can, should, and will uh, change our lives and our lives for the Lord. Uh, if you have your, your scriptures with you, your Bible with you, go and open up to Genesis chapter 24 as we get started. Genesis, uh, this part of Genesis is dealing with the immersion of the nation of Israel. We have Abraham, uh, you know, Abraham who's called forth, our father Abraham was called forth to go uh, to a land he's ever known, ultimately into Canaan, uh, and to, to reside there, and the Lord will give him everything he sees around him as an inheritance to him and his children after him. Uh, then we move to, to Yitzchak, or Isaac, and uh, Yaakov, and Jacob, and we see the development of the nation of Israel to the 12 uh, sons of Israel, and the tribes that develop from them, entrance into slavery in Egypt, uh, being birthed out of Egypt as an actual nation for the first time in their history since Abraham, uh, as many as uh, about a million, million and a half people coming out of there, upwards of two million, I think, max coming out of Egypt. They were actually descendants of Abraham uh, and going to Mount Sinai where they had a national covenant with the Lord. Uh, so we see this development to the nation of Israel beginning in these chapters of Genesis. Uh, and in particular, this Parsha, Chayisera, is dealing with the, the, the life of Isaac or the entrance to the narrative of the life of Isaac. And we see very little about Isaac's life in general in the narrative of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because, as I said last week, we see Isaac's defining moment of faith in the Akedot Yitzchak or the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Uh, which was less a test for Isaac uh, for Abraham and more a test for Isaac. Is that my phone doing that? Awesome. It's doing its own thing. That's great. I turned it on do not disturb. I don't know why it's being disturbed. Okay. We'll see if that works. If not, Facebook Live just doesn't get this message apparently. We'll see how it works out. Um, but 
Alas, nonetheless, we come to this week's Parsha, and we see Chayisarah, and we see the nation of Israel uh, ultimately being birthed forward and so on. Uh, one of the really neat things about this Parsha is this centralized uh, narrative of uh, 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 Eliezer, which is Abraham's servant. If you remember a, a few chapters back, Abraham didn't have a son. This was before Ishmael and before Isaac. He didn't have a son, and the Lord's blessed him, and uh, he's amassed wealth and territory and what have you. And, and he said, you know, hey, what good is all this stuff you've given me, Lord? If I've got no one to give it to when I die, uh, I'm going to end up giving it to the head servant of my household instead, who's not a descendant of mine and clearly not part of the seed of Abraham since he's not the seed of Abraham. Uh, so, so what good is any of this? And the Lord tells him, don't worry, I'm going to give you a kid, da-da-da, and we see all of that. But here we see the reemergence of, of Eliezer again. And Eliezer is not only a servant of Abraham, he's the most trusted servant of Abraham. He is the servant of Abraham with the most seniority. But he's also, in Abraham's eyes, more like a son than a servant. And so when it's time for Isaac to have a bride, when it's time to find a bride for Isaac, he doesn't want to send Isaac out of the land of Canaan because the Lord said, this is your inheritance. You are not to leave. And Abraham takes that serious. Abraham says, cool, well, I'm not going to leave and my son's not going to leave. So I'm going to send somebody to go find a bride for him because I don't want him marrying one of the women of this land. And it's a discussion we see emerge again with Jacob and uh, uh, with Isaac and Rebekah when he sends Jacob out to go to, the, to, to Haran, to Laban's house to find a bride for him instead of doing like his father did keeping him there and sending out for a bride. And so here we see Abraham, verse 1 of chapter 24, says, Now Abraham was old, advanced in years, and Adorai blessed Abraham in everything. Then Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who managed everything that belonged to him, Now put your hand under my thigh, so that I may make you, and, um, I may make you take an oath before Adonai, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am dwelling. The whole hand on the thigh thing is always weird. That one kind of skews me out a little bit every time I read this. But uh, it's an old Semitic, an old, old, old Midi-Semitic uh, custom, uh, and it's rather intimate in agreement. Um, so we'll leave it at that. But uh, the whole purpose to this was he was saying, Eliezer, look, I don't want you to, I don't want a bride for, for Isaac from here in Canaan. I want you to go back to my homeland. I want you to find a bride for Isaac there and bring her back. And so the next thing Eliezer says is, well, what do I do if the bride, if the, the girl doesn't come back with me, if she doesn't want to leave? Do I take Isaac with me and go to, go to, to find him a bride? I mean, you said you don't want him to marry anyone here, so then do I pick him up and take him to go find somebody there? Abraham says, no, that's, that's the bottom line. I don't want that to happen. Verse 6, he says, Abraham said to him, see to it that you don't return my son there. I deny the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from my native land and who spoke to me and made a pledge to me saying, to your seed, I will give this land. And this is where it's important. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. Again, just like with Isaac and uh, the Akeda, the binding of Isaac, Abraham had no doubt that Isaac was coming back off that mountain with him. Whether he was resurrected from the dead or God provided an alternative sacrifice, there was no doubt in his mind that this miraculous child was coming down the mountain with him. No doubt in his mind. And yet here again, there's no doubt in his mind. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be freed from this oath of mine. Nevertheless, you must not return my son there. So then we move forward and we see that uh, Eliezer goes, okay, cool, I got it. Sticks his hand on his thigh. 
loads up the donkeys and the camels and hauls off with all of the goods that he's got to give to the family of the young lady that he's hoping can be, come back with him to be Isaac's wife. He's on his journey and he gets to Haran or to the area around Haran and he comes to a well in the city, right outside the city and he sits down and he waits. Now, historically, we recognize that it was often the young women of the house that would go, the daughters that would go and gather water for the family for the day. So he knew he was arriving at the well at about the time of day that all the young ladies from uh, the city would come out um, and would be coming to the well to get water. So he's got a pretty good vantage point here, right? All the women of the town are going to be right here. Pretty easy to kind of pick and choose and figure out which one you want to talk to. So he sits down and he waits. And unlike most people today, who you know, have dating apps on their phone or going to bars and are just trying to hit anyone they can up for a date or whatever it may be. They're trying to connect with anyone and everyone. Eliezer, on the other hand, has been mentored, has been discipled, has been raised by Abraham, by a great man of faith, who yet, even though he's felled over and over again, Scripture says over and over again as a man of faith that we are to admire and to learn to be like. And so here Eliezer sits down at the well and he's, he starts to pray because his, his natural instinct, having been a servant of Abraham, is to pray to the God of Abraham, who ultimately will become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to pray to the God of Abraham. Verse 12, he says, Adonai, the God of Abraham, my master, he said, please make something happen before me today and show loyalty to Abraham, my master. Look, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are going out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please tip your jar so that I may drink, and she will say, drink, and also I will water your camels. Let her be the one who uh, you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So by this I will know that you have shown graciousness to, your master, uh, to my master. Right out the gate, point blank, to the, uh, you know, right to the point, direct, very specific in his prayer. Right? Lord, I want to be victorious in you in this situation. You know the chore that my master has given me. You know the call I have been given and I am answering. So here's what I want you to do, Lord. I will know that it's the one you have chosen. If when I ask for water, she goes, sure, here's some water immediately. And also I'll water your camels. Anybody ever researched camels? They drink a lot. They drink rare, but they drink a lot. It's something like 70 to 100 gallons they can drink at any given time. And they drink until they're done. They don't just, you know, it's not like they drink a little bit. You got to remember camels are storing water for later because they don't drink very often. So they're drinking until they're satisfied, not just then, but for days on end. All right, so he's, this is a very specific prayer. It's not like a power bill comes in and we're shortchanged and we go, okay, God, this one's on you, $376.14, that's what I need. This is way more than that. This is, okay, when she comes and I ask for water, I'll know it's the one for you when she not only gives me a little sip and quenches my thirst, but all these camels that are going to drink like there's no tomorrow when she will serve them water till they're satisfied too. In other words, I will know it's the one you've picked when I see the servant's heart in her. And so he's very specific with this prayer. And what's neat is right afterwards, and there's no doubt in his mind, right afterwards, verse 15, it says, Now before he had even finished speaking, behold, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, going out with, the jar, with her jar on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very good-looking, a girl of marriageable age, and she was a virgin. 
Not really sure how he figured that one out, but it's a whole other sidetrack. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me sip a little water from your jar. Just like he prayed, when I ask for a sip of water, then she'll do all of this stuff. I will know for sure that it's the one you've set aside. So immediately afterwards, verse 18, so she said, drink my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar onto her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she finished giving him a drink, she said, I, uh, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've finished drinking, right? Not just throw them a little slop and hope they're okay, but till they finished drinking. So she quickly poured out her, wa- her jug into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew water for all the camels over and over and over and over again. She's doing, you ever used a ladle to get a cup of soup out? You know, you, you try to get all that soup then into a bucket that's left over to put in the fridge, and it takes forever, and ultimately you just get tired of it and dump the whole soup. Imagine a ladle, but about this big around, and for a ton of camels that don't stop drinking for hours. And she just keeps going back and keeps going back. And there's not a a complaint or an anger or anything in her. So she quickly poured out her jug into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew water for all his camels. Verse 21, while the man continued to pay close attention to her, keeping silent in order to know whether or not Adonai had made his way successful. Verse 26, immediately after she's done with the water, verse 26, then the man bowed down and worshiped before Adonai and said, blessed be Adonai, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loyalty and his truth toward my master. As for me, Adonai has guided me in in the way to the house of my master's brother. Right out the gate, as soon as he prays and even says before he had finished speaking, Here comes Rebecca, and everything transpires exactly as he had prayed. Now, when we pray, especially, especially when it's something that actually requires faith, heaven forbid, when we pray, especially about something that actually requires faith, like, you know, healing, we're praying for healing, and we explain to the Lord the situation, and we explain why this illness is so bad or why the joint pain is so bad. And we explain how it's going to be debilitating in these areas and these areas. And we explain how it's going to affect their family and the generations after them and, and, and you know, a millennia behind us. And, and we explain how great everything... He doesn't need all that. He's well aware. Probably more so than we could ever imagine being. He's well aware, Right? And I think a lot of times we do all of that before we ever get to the request that we're beseeching the Lord for because we don't have faith. We're trying to talk ourselves into faith that the Lord's going to do what we're hoping the Lord's going to do, right? But the Lord says to, to, do, to, to be like Yeshua, right? The gospel says, Yeshua says, when the comforter comes, we can do even greater things than he did, Right? If we look at Yeshua as the example, we talked about this some when we dealt with our uh, study on, uh, on the Ruach HaKodesh, a Ruach encounter. Um, when we look at Yeshua as our example, when Yeshua prayed for healing, he didn't try to talk God into it. He wasn't trying to barter. He wasn't trying to explain it away to build up his own faith. He said, get up and walk. Open your eyes and see. Open your mouth and speak. Lazarus, come out the grave. There wasn't a fear. There wasn't a lack of faith. There wasn't a concern. We go to the disciples and ask the same thing. Get up and walk. Silver and gold up by none, but what I do have I give unto you. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Right? But we don't act like that. 
Because unfortunately, 2,000 years removed from Yeshua walking on earth, having seen the miracles and the signs and wonders that have ensued all the way up to this point, it didn't stop with Acts 2, no matter what certain theological points like to say. It didn't stop with Acts 2. It didn't stop with the first century. It didn't stop with the death of the disciples and the apostles. Signs, miracles, and wonders have continued. I am alive today because of signs, miracles, and wonders. I should have been dead years ago with diagnoses connected to asthma and possible holes in my lungs and so on. I should have been dead years ago, but I'm alive because of signs, miracles, and wonders because the Lord was not done with me and he had more in store. I'm alive today because people of faith prayed for me. How often when something we pray for doesn't come true in somebody's life, we pray for healing and the healing doesn't come and we go, well, you should have more faith. The Bible says you and I should have had more faith, not the person we're praying for. When the disciples came back to Yeshua and said, why can't we drive this demon out? Yeshua says, because you don't have enough faith. Not because the guy possessed with demons doesn't have enough faith, because the disciples didn't. Take that in. We do not beseech the Lord for things we are wanting and hoping may possibly potentially come true. We're seeking the Lord for things that we know he can and will do. Right? Isaiah says, and it's repeated in the Gospels, by his stripes, by the stripes of Messiah, the, the wounds that were put upon his back, the blood that drained, and the sacrifice that was poured out, by his stripes we are what? Healed. Not we could be. Not we might. Not it's a potential. We are healed. Now, I need a little precursor here to simply say, we're not guaranteed eternal life here, but that's a future thing. Ultimately, we've got to die, and ultimately the healing will run out for us. All right, we're not guaranteed healing on every little thing, but we are healed. And when we pray for healing for people, we should have faith that the Lord who gives and provides healing can heal and will heal, not hope that maybe perhaps it could possibly if God's in the right mood today. Right? I want you to understand, when we go to the Brachadashah, to the New Covenant writings, uh, and we read about Abraham, Abraham over and over and over again is mentioned as a man of faith, and this is the person whom Eliezer, his servant, studied under, worshipped under, walked with, lived with, ministered with, over and over and over again. Eliezer went to battle with him. Eliezer served in his household with him. Eliezer raised his children with him. Eliezer ministered with him. Eliezer beseeched the Lord with him. Eliezer was there along every step of the way with Abraham from the day he left his father's household till the day Abraham died. And he was Abraham's most trusted servant. And when we look in, uh, in Romans 4 about Abraham, uh, verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his seed to become heir of the world was not through law, but through righteousness based on trust. For, it was, uh, for if those who are of the Torah are heirs, trust has become empty and the promise is made ineffective. The Torah, uh, for the Torah brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Verse 16, it picks up, and this is a discussion about Abraham's faith. Verse 16 says, For this reason, it depends on trust, so that the promise according to grace might be guaranteed to all the offspring. Not only to those of the Torah, in other words, those who are Jewish, who were born in the lineage of Abraham, but also to those of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Speaking of those who are born into Judaism, and particularly those born in Judaism except Messiah, but it's a whole other story. Uh, and those from the nations who are brought into the covenant through Abraham is what it's dealing with here. And he goes on to say, uh, he is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he trusted, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. 
I want to hang on that statement for just a second. In the TLV, the Tree of Life version says, and calls into existence that which does not exist. In the NASB, that line says, and calls into being that which does not exist. In the, tree, the uh, KJV, it says something along the lines of, who makes that which is not as though it were. And we see this concept over and over again in the, the discussion of, of Abraham, a particular discussion of faith. And so here he reads in uh, verse 18, And hope beyond hope he trusted that he would become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own body as good as dead since he was already 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet he did not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God has promised, he also is able to do. That is why it was credited credited to him as righteousness. So even when, and when it talks about he believed in the God who makes things that, that do not exist as though they exist, or, or here in the tree of life, it says, and calls into existence that which does not exist. That whole image is speaking of his faith and hope in God's promises, which up to that point, when he was almost 100 years old, because Isaac was born when he was 100, was almost 100 years old, almost a century of his life so far had not become a reality yet. The promises and blessings that God had told him were coming to him. The many nations that would be born from him, the many nations that would be blessed through his descendants was not yet a reality in his life, yet he hoped beyond hope without a doubt in his mind that that truth uh, and promise and blessing of the word of the Lord was going to become a reality in his life. How many of you have family that you long to see to come salvation. How many believe fervently that that salvation is available and is theirs? How many of you pray day in and day out for their salvation? You got to understand, we've got to have the same hope beyond hope and what isn't as though it is believing fervently for their salvation, praying for their salvation so that they can come to faith and salvation. We can't we can't, and as believers, we far too often get this mentality of it's us as believers versus them as non-believers. Or, well, you know, I did my best. I, you know, they should have come to the Lord. It's not my fault if they go to hell, whatever, right? We can't have that kind of an attitude. We can't. We can't afford it. The world can't afford it. And the Lord doesn't need us to have that kind of attitude. Because up until you and I became believers, up until you and I found our salvation, there were people just like you and I praying for our salvation also. And none of them gave up on us. And none of them made excuses for us. And none of them stopped praying for us. And here we stand and here we are. And as believers, as people desiring to see the world around us come to salvation, it is now our duty, much like Abraham trusting the promises of God, to trust in the promise of salvation for our family, for our friends, for our community, for the people the Lord has placed us in contact and communication with. Hebrews 11 verse 1 now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of reality is not seen, for by it the elders receive commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the will of God so that what is seen did not come from anything visible. I want you to grasp this. And this whole rest of this chapter, we're not going to dive into it, but all the rest of Hebrews 11, what's it about? The great men of faith, Right? Abraham and Isaac and David and, and the prophets and so on. whole rest of the chapter is all about these great men of faith. And here he says, right after we read in Romans, we pick up again here, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the words of God so that what is seen did not come from anything visible. In other words, he spoke into existence that which was never existent, that which was never, had never had being before. He spoke it into existence. 
right? Whether we're talking of creation or the breath that you and I breathe in or the word of God that we read day in and out, he breathed this into existence when nothing else existed except him. And he didn't need any of us or any of the mess that we bring along. I'm trying not to use Yiddish here. Any of the mess that we bring along into this world. But he wanted us. And he wanted to love us. And he wanted to receive our love. And he spoke us into existence anyways. He spoke us into existence from nothingness so that we could have his love, so that we could share his love with others. And I want you to follow with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 26 as well, following that same, same stream of consciousness. For you see your calling, brothers and sisters, that not many are wise according to human standards, not many are powerful, and not many are born well. Yet God chose the foolish things of the world so he might put to shame the wise and God chose the weak things of the world so he might put to shame the strong and God chose the lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are as nothing. Put your name in there. Reread that. Put your name in it. And God chose the lowly and despised things of this world. Instead of lowly and despised, put your name. And God chose Rabbi David and God chose Lynn, and God chose Joel, and God chose John, and God chose John, and all the other Johns that may be floating around. And God chose you and I, in spite of the mess that we are. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world. The things that are as nothing. We are created in the image and likeness of God, but prior to faith and salvation and the, the blood atonement of Messiah, we have lived our lives as nothing as a waste of God's presence in our lives, as a waste of his image and likeness. Yet, he chose the lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are as nothing, so he might bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast before God. You and I, by ourselves, individually, heck, even collectively, we're nothing without the presence of God, which makes us something. So see, as much as we're longing and praying for the salvation of our, our families, as much as Eliezer was longing and praying for a successful mission to go and find a wife for Isaac, his, his master's son, as much as we pray fervently for healing and, and salvation, as much as we recognize that God has given us promises and blessings and, and, and words of wisdom and knowledge and so on, as much as we recognize that prophecy has been spoken over our community and over our individual lives and over the congregation here and over the body of Messiah, over all of this, you and I have no control over it, but we can't have faith, hope, and walk in it. See, we can't have faith in the promises of God while also walking in fear that it may not come true. We can't believe that they are promises from a God whose word never comes back void if we're afraid that it might come back void. We believe fervently the Lord spoke and prophesied revival over our congregation, over the Messianic movement, over the modern body of Messiah, especially a latter-day outpouring in rain. We believe that it is birthing in our congregation even now. And we can't believe that, hope in it, have faith in it, trust in it, while at the same time being afraid it may not happen. You can't be praying and longing for the salvation of your family if you're also afraid that it may not happen. You can't walk in fear of the world around us when the Lord has called us in faith, trusting, and righteousness to impact the world around us because we're afraid they won't accept us or afraid they won't receive us or we're afraid they won't receive Messiah. 
We can't be afraid of the things that are to come or be praying against the end of days and the events that are supposed to transpire while at the same time saying we believe fervently in the promises and truths of the Lord and His promised return of Messiah. Because the two don't go hand in hand. We can't speak out both sides of our faces. We can't long for His soon return and also pray that all the things that have to happen first are held off. It doesn't work that way. Traditional Jewish world has spent the last... 3,000, 4,000 years longing for the second coming of Messiah to come first so that we don't have to deal with any more suffering that the suffering servant would have to deal with. We've been longing for the victorious king to end all suffering while ignoring that a suffering servant must come first. We can't have hope, faith, and trust in something we don't actually have hope, faith, and trust in. It doesn't work that way. I don't know about you, but I... I've spent my entire life praying for the salvation of my family, for my family to come to know the promised Jewish Messiah. My father has spent over half of his life now, or close to half of his life now, over half of his life now, praying for his family to come to know their promised Jewish Messiah. I have spent my entire life's work as a Messianic rabbi reaching out into the Jewish community, longing for the Jewish community to come to know their promised Jewish Messiah. I am a part of a movement that believes fervently in the words of the Lord from Romans 11, from Yeshua's words in the gospel, saying that all Israel will be saved. I believe fervently in that truth. I believe fervently in Romans 11 that says all Israel will be saved and that when they do, it will be like life from the dead for the rest of the world. How many want to see life for the dead for the body of Messiah? How many recognize that the body of Messiah today might as well be dead because we're useless, because we're too afraid to walk in what God has given us? We cry out for revival while ignoring the fact that there's only ever been one revival that hasn't stopped and we're either in it or we're out of it. It didn't suddenly start with Acts 2 when spontaneous happened again with the, the, the fire and brimstone preaching in the 1800s or, or the outpouring in Azusa Street or, or the Jesus movement or anything else. It's been going on since the days of Acts 2 in the first century. And there are those believers who walk in it and those who walk away from it. But if we want to walk in the power, the fervency, the presence of the Lord and His Ruach HaKodesh, we've got to actually do it. We've got to actually be men of faith. See, I talked last week about Abraham being a, an interesting juxtaposition that is a, 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 a phenomenal example of who we are as people of faith and also failure. The thing that defines Abraham, though, as we see in Romans and in Hebrews and other places, the thing that defines Abraham's life is that the faith trumped the failure. The faith outweighed the failures. The faith overcame the failures. The faith allowed for restoration even while he was walking in failure. And you and I have those same opportunities, those same realities, and those same truths that we should have faith, hope, and trust in. Because as much as you and I believe fervently in our salvation, and I pray that every person in this room has received Yeshua's salvation, and if you haven't, please come see me after service, because I don't want you leaving this place till you know it. till you know that you know that you know that the blood atonement of Messiah is upon your life, and there is eternal life awaiting you. But you've got to understand we cannot, at one side of our face, say, talk about faith, hope, and trust, while at the other side of our face, face actually not living. How many of you fast on a regular basis? You're right, I'm doing the one thing in homiletics. They say, don't do, don't ask questions you expect a response to. How many fast on a regular basis? Do you realize that it's a principle of Scripture that we're supposed to live by? Don't get me wrong, my hand was only up to get yours up. I, I'm horrible at it. Look at me. I don't like fasting. It's not my favorite thing in the world to do. 
That doesn't mean I don't get conviction on it over and over and over again in my life. How many of you read the Bible every single day? And I don't mean like open it up and flip through the Parsha or go and open up the Version app to look at the verse of the day. I mean actually consume the Word of God every single day. How many of you are in prayer every single day? I mean, not just, oh Lord, you know, I hope I make this red light or I hope I get to work on time or, you know, let there be dinner waiting on me. How many of you are actually in communion with the Lord every single day? You know, the word of God says pray without ceasing. Not just for what we want. I actually think that three quarters of prayer should be listening, not talking. Probably more than that. Probably 99% should be listening, not talking. But I think the Lord knows we're ADD and we're going to get lost if we don't do a little talking too. Maybe me more than you, I don't know. How many of you realize that praying for others is a necessity as part of the Great Commission? How many of you realize that living a witness of Messiah in our lives day in and day out, no matter what, is a necessity for being a believer? We cannot call ourselves people of faith if we simply hoard it. We can't call ourselves people of faith if the only interaction we have with faith is Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings if you go to church. We can't call ourselves people of faith if we're only people of faith because our... Don't let this step on your toes. If because our parents were people of faith. How many, know, how many of us know people that are, are believers because their parents were? I'm a Baptist because my parents took me to Baptist church my whole life. That doesn't make you a Baptist. Most certainly doesn't make you a follower of Messiah. How many of us believe in signs and wonders? How many of us live in signs and wonders. Once you understand, that's a part of our call. That's not something that was just given to a couple of people in the first century. That's not something that's just merely given to us. <laughs> just blowing your minds on this one. That is not one of the things mentioned in the gifts of the Spirit because it's all of ours. The Spirit of God dwells in us and it is ours to speak life into others. Notice it's not begging the Lord to do something cool. But it's declaring the Lord's work is at hand. You know what the sign of a good prophet is? Not one that tells something that comes true, but one that speaks what is already truth. If we look at the Bible, a prophet is somebody who speaks the word of God, not soothsayers and fortune tellers and, and, and whatever. Somebody that speaks the word of God. Some of that is things that will come true in the future. And others of it is calling Israel back and the people of God back and God's creation back to the God that created them. See, the thing you've got to understand and I have to understand is that you and I are creating the image and likeness of God. And we chose, willingly chose to walk away from that, to chase after the ways of this world. But the Lord gave His only begotten Son that you and I could be restored to his image and likeness so that we can share his image and likeness with the world around us. And it's time that we, the body of Messiah, not just cry out for revival, but that we live revival in faith and hope and trust that it is real, that it is pertinent, that it is alive and, and active today. It's time that we as the bride of Messiah recognize that we don't just speak and hope and ask for salvation and healing, but it's something that we can declare. I declare that my family will be saved. You know why I can declare that? Because my family is Jewish. They're part of Israel. And the word of God says all Israel will be saved. How that all plays out, I don't know. 
But I hope I get to see it play out. I hope I get to see it. The greatest moment of my life, and I'm dead serious, I'm married. One of the most awesome moments of my life was my wedding. We've got two kids. One of the most awesome moments of my life were seeing my two kids be born from the purview of by my wife's head and not actually seeing it happen. <laughs> really weird, but I'm not doing that. Uh, but the, uh, in all honesty, though, of all the stuff that I've been through, all the stuff that uh, my, my dad's gone through as a believer, uh, coming up in a, a traditional Jewish home and coming to faith in Messiah, and everything that's gone on over the years of how the Christian world has treated us and the Jewish world has treated us, the greatest moment in my life, without a doubt, was the moment that I got to see the years of prayer and trusting and faith and hope become reality when on my, her deathbed, my grandmother opened up vocally to the family and declared her faith in Yeshua's Messiah. That was the greatest moment of my life. Because I've spent my life having to put up with being stuck between a rock and a hard place, between the Jewish world and the Christian world, neither of which like us, neither of which want anything to do with us, both of which I'm a part of. And both of which it's my heart's desire to see come to fullness and walking with the Lord. From one hand, salvation, and the other hand, recognizing who they're a part of. And to get to see my grandmother in hospice, in the bed, as literally overnight she went from could go at any moment to vibrant light shining off of her, excited, happy. She looked like she could have gotten out of the bed and went home. And she boastfully proclaimed to our family her faith in Messiah. And she told my dad, she asked my dad to preside over her funeral. She told my dad, you better make sure you tell everyone the choice I made and why it's important that they make the same choice. When my dad first became a believer, or shortly thereafter, my grandfather told my dad, called him up and said, I'll buy you any house you want if you'll forget that Jesus stuff. Got to watch my grandmother come to faith. Hope, faith, trust. The Lord's, the Lord's word does not come back void. If the Lord has spoken promise and prophecy in your life, it will not come back void. If it does, it wasn't of the Lord. You might want to check where you're hearing it from. The Lord says all Israel will be saved. If we are part of the pride of Messiah, the body of Messiah, if we long to see Messiah's return, our primary purpose in life should be to see Israel come to know the Messiah. Because Yeshua says, I will not come back until all Israel proclaims, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Replacement theology is garbage. Bottom line, how many of you want to see revival? Faith, hope, and trust. Lord's word does not come back void. Revival is here. It is now. It has already been breathed upon us. We can live in it or we cannot. The choice is ours. And you can't live in it if you're not a person walking by faith, which includes not the concise list, but includes on a daily basis 
Communion with the Lord in prayer. Actually listening to the Lord in prayer. Being in His Word daily. Not just the words of the day on a calendar, on the app, on your phone, but actually being in the Word. It includes fasting regularly, which none of us want to talk about. But it does. read a book about fasting a few years back that one of the concepts that was brought up over and over again is if it's important to you and you want it to be important to God, you should show Him how important it is. Fast. How many of you want to see revival? Fast. How many of you want to see family come to know the Lord? Fast. How many of you want to see your congregation grow? How many of you want to see the Messianic movement grow? How many of you want to see the impact of the body of Messiah as a whole on the world be known again? How many of you want to see your work life changed? How many of you want to see your family life changed? How many of you want to see your spouses come to the Lord? How many of you want to see your spouses come to worship with you? How many of you want to see your family come to worship with you? How many of you are looking for new jobs? How many of you are looking for a job? How many of you are looking for a dollar? Fasting. It's not some magic thing that comes. It's in the Word of God. Fast. Show God how important it is to you. We're going to be reinstituting something we did a few years ago and somehow faded away from it. I don't even know. Looking back, I don't even know how it happened. We're going to be reinstituting again our congregational fast every single week. We're going to fast all week every week. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> no, we're not. We're going to be fasting once a week, every week as a community. You can buy in or you cannot. That's up to you and it's between you and the Lord. But as a community, we're going to be fasting every single week. Sundown, Tuesday to, uh, sundown Monday to sundown Tuesday. And the reason we set it up that way in the original uh, when we originally did it was because then we could break fast together on Tuesday nights. So, hey, come Tuesday nights. Plug that one in there too. Um, but we're going to be fasting as a community, sundown Monday to sundown Tuesday. Why sundown to sundown? First and foremost, because it doesn't get you as hungry. You eat dinner right, you can sneak a dinner in right before sundown and you're eating right after sundown and it's a little easier. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but because it's a biblical day, it's because it's a biblical day, sundown to sundown and there was day one, sundown and sundown. There was day two. It's a biblical day. So as a community, sundown Monday to sundown Tuesday, we will be fasting again from here out. And I don't plan on it ending. I didn't plan on ending before. Somehow it did. But we're going to do it as a community. I am going to be fasting more for you guys and for our congregation and for my family and other things in my life that I desire to see the Lord move in. I'm personally going to be fasting more, not just the once a week. As a matter of fact, Danielle and I will be fasting this coming week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Bottom line, fasting's a part of it. Communion with the Lord is a part of it. Being in the Word of God is a part of it. In order for us to want the revival that the Lord has promised, we've got to be willing to live in what we have from the Lord now. And far too often, we're forsaking what we have in the Lord now. Far too often, we're forsaking the relationship we're supposed to be cultivating Eliezer knew how to pray and how to expect and how to have faith in what the Lord was going to do because he saw it, witnessed, uh, he witnessed it played out before him in the person of Abraham. You and I know how to live this out because we see the witness of it in this book. You talk to great men of faith, fasting, prayer, word of God. That's how they got it done. I was just in a, at the conference, I was just in a meeting with Lou Engel and Rabbi Jason Sobel talking about the call uh, which is the, this year the call 
or this coming year, the call uh, that Lou Engle does is huge prayer rallies and fasting and whatever, worship rallies. This year's focus, Messianic Judaism, being a part of it. The Azusa Street, uh, Azusa Now, which was a celebration, the Azusa Street outpouring 100 years later, uh, last year, the year before last, they kicked it off. The first couple of hours of it was Messianic Jewish leaders leading it. The day before, they had a pre-Azusa Now with just Messianic Jewish people in preparation for They said, you know what? Luingo says, look, this is the head, not the tail. Anything we do is got to start with Messianic Judaism in order for the body Messiah to be benefited from it. And so the call this year, which I think they're talking about fall of 2018, the call is for Messianic Jews and Christians alike to come together. And I listen to Lou Engel, who regularly, and I don't listen to him a lot in general, not that I got anything against him, I just haven't, but Lou Engel made it a point to say, look, the key to everything he does is fasting. That's what keeps him in line with what the Lord is speaking. That's what keeps him in line with the will of the Lord and the direction the Lord's taking him. Because when we take out all the extra stuff, all that other, you know, whether it's food or it's, it's uh, uh, the TV or Facebook or whatever, we take all that stuff out, it's amazing how much more loud the voice of the Lord becomes. Fasting, it's a key. It's one of the most important keys that we never talk about in America because we like to eat, a.k.a. Thanksgiving's in two weeks. We like to eat. So with that said, I want to take time today for those that may want to, to open up for prayer after service. Uh, if you feel the Lord's laid it on your heart uh, and you need prayer, come up, talk to me. Um, if you want to talk to me about fasting, if you want to talk to me about uh, what you want to see the Lord do in your life or in our community or whatever, I'm here for you. And look, I'm not just here for you on Saturdays. Get on the realm and talk to us. Message me through Facebook or text me. Most of you have my number. Email me, whatever. You, my phone's always in my hands. I'm available. Um, I'm here for you. This is something we got to do as community. As much as we do individually, this is something we got to do as community. We've got to cover this area in prayer. The Lord assigned us to the Eastern Shore. I don't know why. I didn't want to come back to Alabama. But this is where he brought us, and he assigned us. And each and every person who's a part of this community has signed us to the Eastern Shore. He has signed us to affect this side of the bay, and we often affect the other side too. He has signed us here, and we've got to cover it in prayer. We've got to cover what the Lord's doing in our midst in prayer, and we've got to be a part of it. We've got to move with it. We've got to actually get in the trenches and do some work for once. Unfortunately, the body of Messiah, we're too, too busy and we're too readily uh, willing to let other people pick up the slack but we can't do that anymore. We don't live in those days. It's time for us to either get on board or get out of the way, right? Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for the awakening you put in our hearts and our lives. I thank you for the call you have given us. Father, I thank you for some of us, the condemnation that brings us back into your will, Lord. Father, the smack on the back of the head you give us sometimes to realign us. Father, I pray that you give us a fervency to live lives as disciples, not just as people who call ourselves believers. Father, I pray that you continue to build the power, the might, and the presence of your Ruach in our lives day in and day out. And that you speak new life.
breathe new life in our midst. Father, I pray that all of those who raise their hands longing for their family's salvation will come to see the fruition of their heart's cry. All those who have a yearning and a desire for revival, for outreach, for calling. Father, that they will see their heart's desire come to fruition. But Father, most importantly, I ask you, Lord, give us a burden, a burden to be disciples, a burden to be people of faith, not people who talk about faith, a burden to be people who live in your presence, not people constantly crying out for your presence. Father, give us a burden to be people who operate in the gift of the Spirit, who operate in the move of the Spirit, not who make excuses for the lack of the Spirit in our lives. Father, I pray that you lift us up, that your Shekhinah, your divine glory will radiate off of us, and that every life we come into contact with will be changed, transformed, and impacted by your presence. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.